The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. For a study this morning, we'll get back into Thessalonians, but we finished uh, chapter 2, so... uh, I'm going to do a few other things that I wanted to touch on. Uh, I want to look this morning particularly at the doctrine of the Trinity. Now it seems that when some people come to the truth of the preterist view of eschatology, there's this tendency to want to throw out all Christian doctrine and start from scratch. And I'm not sure why that is, because your eschatology doesn't change the fundamentals of the faith. But a doctrine that seems to get attacked a lot is the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, though the word Trinity is never found in the pages of Scripture, they bring that up a lot. Uh, Yeah, I'm aware of that. It's a doctrine that is taught throughout the Scripture, both in the Tanakh, and I want to try to demonstrate that to you today, and in the New Testament. Trinity is a word that's used to express the unity of God subsisting in three distinct persons. It's a word describing the unity of the Godhead as three co-eternal co-equal persons, each having the same substance, but distinct persons. It's a word that describes a purely revealed doctrine, undiscoverable by reason, but clearly taught in the Scripture. Now, as Christians, we affirm that there's one eternal being known as Yahweh, yet this one eternal being exists in three individual persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, logically, in our human minds, we cannot entirely understand how one being can exist in three persons. Yet as Christians, we affirm the truth of both to be true. In the 1689 London Baptist Confession, chapter 2, paragraph 3, states it this way. In this divine and infinite being, there are three substances, the Father, the Word or Son, the Holy Spirit of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, Yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. All infinite, without beginning, therefore but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations." Which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him? Now, the Trinity is one of the distinctive doctrines of Christianity. It's a doctrine that has been under attack since the 3rd century. In the first decade of the 3rd century, the Alexandrian priest named Arius began teaching the heresy that the Son was not a real son, because if he was a real son, then his father must have existed before him. Therefore, the divine father must have existed before the divine son, and the son is a creature created by God. He declared the son was the greatest and the eldest of all God's creatures, and was himself a God, but still created, and therefore, like all creatures, of an essence or substance which previously had not existed. Arius clashed with Alexander, who was the bishop of Alexandria, who believed in the co-eternality of the Word of God, while Arius taught that the Word was created by God. Arius stated that there was a time when he, the Son, was not. Now the Arians inferred from this that Christ is a creature created by the Father, and though he existed before the world began. Now, because Alexander understood this as a dangerous threat to the church, he publicly condemned Arius, his teaching, and he removed him from all church posts. This led to the calling of the first ecumenical council, the Council of Nicaea. And at the council, Arius' teaching was formally condemned. The debate lasted from May 20th until June 19th. So they spent a whole month dealing with this, at which point the council produced an initial form of the Nicene Creed, which condemned Arianism and established the doctrine of the Trinity. 
Now, this didn't end the teaching of Arius. It continued to have some great influence. The Arian Christology actually almost became predominant at that time. But there was another man who succeeded Alexander, whose name was Athanasius. And Athanasius was one of the great heroes of the faith. Uh, The Council of Constantinople, the doctrine of Nicaea was affirmed again through the polemics and through the strength and character of Athanasius and others. And so Arius' doctrine, there was a time when he was not, was refuted. And the Christian church came solidly to stand behind the fact that there was not a time when he did not exist. He did not become, he was not made, he was and he possessed the same essential nature as the Father. And those councils affirmed the fact of homoousia, one essence. Meaning that Yeshua was of the same essence of the Father. They declared the deity of Yeshua the Christ. Now the Athanasian Creed states it this way. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made, not created, but begotten. The Holy Ghost is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Ghost, not three Holy Ghost. And in this Trinity, none is a four or after another, none greater nor less than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal. Now, Nathan Bucinus summarizes Arius' impact this way. He said, in ancient times, Arius' teaching presented the foremost threat to Orthodox Christianity, which is why historians like Alexander McKay have labeled him the greatest heretic of antiquity. So they took this very seriously, the idea that they were attacking the doctrine. See, if you don't have a trinity, you don't have deity of Christ. Okay? Those go together, and that's really important that we understand that. And I think this gives us some idea of how dangerous the church took the teaching that denied the deity of Christ. Arianism had all but vanished by the 7th century, but later on in the 16th century, the Sassinians, who also denied the deity of Christ, they would use their buzz phrase was when Christ said in John 14, 28, for my Father is greater than I. That, that was their spoof text for saying he's not equal to the Father. Well, Ryan Turner says this, He says, despite the best efforts of Orthodox Church to stamp out Arianism, there are branches of the belief that continue to the present day. One of them is the Jehovah Witnesses. Jehovah Witnesses deny the eternality of the Son, and in that sense, they are Arian, like in their Christology. They deny the Trinity, they deny the deity of the Son of God as well. The Mormons also deny the deity of the Son of God. They speak of Him as the Son of God, but they deny His eternity. They deny the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Now, in my opinion, anyone who denies the deity of Christ or the Trinity is not very familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures. And I hope to try to show that today. They they don't understand the Hebrew Scriptures, they don't understand a lot of the idioms in Hebrew, or they'd be able to pick up on this very clearly. Now, speaking of someone who's not familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures, somebody in a Facebook discussion on preterism writes this, I would say that the process that has brought most of us to fulfilled understanding, if used in regards to other commonly held beliefs and traditions, would change those traditions as well. Audience relevance alone destroys the idea of the Trinity. Yeah, I know. You, I see the question marks. Well, let me explain. You'll, I think you'll get it when I show you why he comes up with that. Uh, and it makes sense when the way he comes up with it. He says this, The entire Bible is written by and to absolutely, singularly, completely monotheistic Jews. The idea of the Trinity is so far removed from their sphere of thinking that it would have been absurd. (laughs) That is definitely false, okay? That's the thing. Like I said, he doesn't understand the Hebrew Scriptures here, and we're going to get into this. He goes on to say, much changed after A.D. 70, though. There was a push push back against Judaism and a purposeful move away from the Jewish leadership in the Christian church. 
without that dramatic move away from the Old Testament reality of the nature of God, Trinitarianism could never have been introduced. I'm convinced that as we study the actual Word of God, which we're going to look at the actual Word of God today, and move away from creeds, so he's kind of blaming this teaching simply on the creeds, the teaching of the Trinity will become considerably more difficult to swallow. Now, I think this is wrong on many levels, all right? Many levels. And I think, you know, he thinks it's, uh, it goes against... <clears throat> audience relevance, because he thinks the people that in the New Testament had no idea of this, this was a, an idea that was made up. But let me ask you this to start with. Were the Jews monotheistic? Let me give you the definition of monotheism. Dictionaries define monotheism as the belief that there is only one God. From the Greek mono, single, and theos, God. So did the Jews believe there was only one God? No, they did not. Now, if you had asked me last week were the Jews monotheistic, I would have said yeah. But the more I started thinking about this, I said, wait a minute, they're not... They didn't believe that there was only one God. They didn't believe that. The first commandment that God gave them after they came out of Egypt, was what? You shall have no other gods before me. Well, okay, Lord, there is none, so that shouldn't be a problem. Next one? What's the next commandment? I got that one down. That's ridiculous. Why did he tell them that? Because there were other gods, and they just came from Egypt that worshipped a plethora of gods. Every plague was against one of their gods. And so he's telling them, you don't, I don't want you having any other gods before me. Now, most mainstream Old Testament scholars believe that the religion of the early Israelites was neither monotheistic or polytheistic, but was monolatrous. Are you all familiar with monolatrism? <laughs> the Jews were monolatrous. This is, monolatry is the belief in the existence of many gods but with the consistent worship of only one deity. Okay, so just to say that the Jews were monotheistic and they did, therefore they couldn't have, you know, they couldn't have believed in the Trinity is kind of ridiculous because they really weren't monotheistic. They were monolatrists. Let me show you this. Exodus 15.11 Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. So they're saying there's nobody like God among the gods. There's just, he's the greatest. He's the awesome God among the gods. So there is other gods, but Yahweh is the greatest. Deuteronomy 6, 12 through 15. Then take care lest you forget Yahweh, who brought you out of the land of why do I keep doing that? Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is Yahweh your God you shall fear, Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples, who are around you. For Yahweh your God in your midst is jealous. God said, you know, don't be messing with those gods, I'm jealous, I want you to just worship and serve me. Lest the anger of Yahweh your God be kindled against you, and He destroy you from off the face of the earth, and went and served other gods and worshipped them, who they had not known. So, so God tells them, you shall have no other gods before me, but they go out and they're worshipping and they're serving other gods. Now watch what it says, whom they had not known and whom had not, he had not allotted to them. Now, these gods that Israel was worshipped, they weren't allotted to them. They had been allotted to the nations. After the Tower of Babel, God just said, I'm done with you people. You just, you're not going to follow me no matter what I do, no matter what I say. And so he divided up the 70 nations that are in Genesis 10 to 70 gods. And he put these gods over these nations and he said, I'm done. I'm starting over. In chapter 12, he calls Abraham and he creates himself a new nation. But he's telling him those gods were allotted to those people. And we see this in Deuteronomy 
And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts of heaven, and you be drawn away and you bow down to them and serve them, things that Yahweh your God has not allotted to the peoples under the whole heaven. So these gods have been allotted to those people, not to Israel. Yahweh was Israel's God. Over and over in the scripture, he's called Israel's God, okay? Because he was their God, the nations had other gods, and he didn't want his people worshiping them. Deuteronomy 32, 16 and 17. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they were never, who they never knew, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. So again, there's, there's plenty of other gods, and they're told not to worship them. Joshua 24.20 If you forsake Yahweh and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. So Israel was not monotheistic. They were monolatrous. They served one God, who was Yahweh, but they realized that Yahweh was a Godhead. He was made up of more than one divine being. The Jews understood and taught a doctrine called two powers in heaven. And they did this until the second century. And the reason things changed in the second century is because they're dealing with this guy named Yeshua, who's claiming to be God, and now they're saying, well, we can't have another God, so we're going back to this idea and saying, no, no more two powers. We just They denied it to try to deny Yeshua. But the Hebrew faith had a binatarian Godhead. Let's look at the actual Word of God and see just how wrong this person is when he says the idea of the Trinity is so far removed from their sphere of thinking that it would have been absurd. I want to show you today, it wasn't far from their thinking at all. It was embedded in their thinking. Okay, The Trinity is not just Christian theology. The Tanakh taught this. Now some try to defend the Trinity from the very first verse in the Bible saying, that verse, God is plural, and that speaks of Trinity. We see this in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God here is Elohim. Elohim is plural. It's the plural of El, Root meaning might, strength, power. Now, Elohim is plural, but it's what grammarians call a morphological plural. Hebrew nouns that end in I am are plural. So El is God, Elohim is plural, but in most cases throughout the Tanakh, the meaning is singular. Okay? We know this from Hebrew grammar. Elohim is like our English word deer or sheep. How do you know if deer is singular or plural? By the grammar of the sentence and how it's used. That's the only way we know the difference, right? Well, in Genesis 1.1, the verb bara, created, identifies the subject of the verb Elohim as masculine singer. So Genesis 1.1 doesn't talk about the Trinity. So some will go on to verse 26 and they say, we definitely got the Trinity here, right? Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and so on. So, so many will take the plurality language here to refer to the Trinity. Well, who is the us? Who is the our here? Whom is God talking to? I think he's talking to a supernatural heavenly family, the divine council. Now, people who don't understand the divine council, of course, don't get this here. But from Philo, the Onward, Jewish commentators generally held that these plurals were used because Yahweh is addressing His divine counsel. Now, the early post-apostolic fathers, such as Barnabas and Justin Martyr, they saw the plurals as referring to the Trinity, and I think that's how most Christians today see them. But recent scholars tend to agree with the ancient Jewish opinion, and F.W. Cross notes this. He says, in both Ugaritic in biblical literature, the use of the first-person plural is characteristic address of the divine council. The familiar we has long been recognized as the plural address used by Yahweh in His council. 
Now, if you're not familiar with what I'm even talking about, Divine Counsel, go to our website, go to the studies page, and we have a whole section there on the Divine Counsel. Erdman's Bible Dictionary states this, The us in let us make man in our image refers to the sons of God, or lesser gods, mentioned elsewhere, here viewed as the heavenly council centered around the one God. In later usage, these probably would be called angels. Now, I said earlier that the Trinity is not just a Christian formation of Christian theology, but the Tanakh taught this. So let's look at some verses, I think, that make it really clear that they saw this in the Tanakh. Genesis 19.24 Then Yahweh rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from Yahweh out of heaven. So this is kind of strange here. Yahweh from Yahweh. What's that about? How's Yahweh reigning from Yahweh? It sounds kind of strange. Well, in chapter 31, Jacob is talking, and he says this, Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and molted. For I have seen all that Lebanon is doing to you, and I am God of Bethel. All right, so here we've got the angel of God saying, I'm the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now rise and go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Now what I want you to notice here, he says the angel of God is saying this to them, and the, to him, and the angel of God is saying, I'm the God of Bethel. So who's the God of Bethel? Well, we see this if we go back a couple chapters to Jacob's dream that he's referring to here. In Genesis 28:13, it says, And behold, Yahweh stood above it and said, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham your father, the God of Isaac, the God of the land which I, I give you and your offspring. And then in verse 19, he says, He called the name of that place Bethel. So here, the angel says, I'm the God of Bethel, but in chapter 28, Yahweh is the God of Bethel. So I got a question for you. Who is it? Who's the God of Bethel? Is it the angel of Yahweh or is it Yahweh? Yes. yes. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Genesis 48, 15 and 16. It says, And he blessed Joseph and the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who shepherded me all my life unto this day, the angel who redeemed me from all evil. May he bless the boys and through them, let my name be perpetuated in the name of my fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and let them multiply into many in the midst of the earth. Now, I'm using the Lexham English Bible here because it really gives a more accurate Hebrew translation of this verse. But here we see that the angel of God is fused together in the dialogue in Jacob's prayer by the singular verb, may he. May he bless the boys. Well, who is he? Well, it's God in the first stanza, right? It's God in the second stanza, and it's the angel in the third stanza. And the verb bless is singular. It's not may they bless the boys, but may he bless. The verb there puts them together. May he bless the boys because they're interchangeable. Here we have this two Yahweh's idea. And we see this a lot throughout the Tanakh. Exodus 3.1, I think you're familiar with this chapter. This is the chapter on the burning bush. Everybody knows that, right? Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, to the mountain of God. And the angel of Yahweh appeared to him in a flame of fire of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush is burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'm going to turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When Yahweh saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. So here it says, the angel of Yahweh appeared to him. And then it says, when Yahweh saw him, he turned aside. So there's more than one being in this bush. And the rabbis noticed this. They were very familiar with this text, and they saw that there were two Yahwehs in the text. This is the Jewish Godhead. 
The Jews understood and taught, again, two persons in heaven until the second century A.D. The Hebrew scriptures taught a second Yahweh. That's again, I said the Hebrew faith was binatarian. They had a binatarian Godhead. Now notice Exodus 33, 12-14. Moses said to Yahweh, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know who, will send, who you will send with me, yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that, may, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said to him, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. All right, now here it's Yahweh, and Yahweh's telling Moses, my presence will go with you. There's no doubt the Israelites experienced the presence of Yahweh in the Exodus. Now let's talk for just a minute about the presence here. Because the presence of Yahweh is often called Hashem, the name. Jews didn't use the, the term Yahweh, and I don't understand why, because it's used, the ancient Jews did, the ancient Israelites used it, but at a point in time they decided we can't say the name anymore. They called it the ineffable name of Yahweh. They couldn't use it, so they would use Adonai, or they would use Hashem. Hashem is the name. And they would just, that's what they would call God. And that, that comes from Scripture. Let's talk about the name for a minute here. In Isaiah 30, 27, it says, Behold, the name of Yahweh, the Shem, comes from afar, burning with anger, and in thick, rising smoke. His lips are full of fury, and his tongue is like a devouring fire. The name of Yahweh is not, it's not talking about the yod heh vav -Hey here, four letters, okay? It's talking about a person. It's talking about the presence of God. When God's name is there, God's presence is there. Isaiah 60, verse 9. For the coastland shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and their gold with them. For the name of Yahweh your God, and for the Holy One of Israel, because He has made you beautiful. This is what's called the Hebrew parallelism. The name of Yahweh and the Holy One of Israel are the same person. Alright? That's what it's saying. We've got the name of Yahweh, the Hashem, and we've got the Holy One of Israel. They're one. They're one in the same. Psalm 20, verse 1. May Yahweh answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name, the Shem of Yahweh our God. So here it's saying they're protected by the name. Psalm 44, 5. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise against us. What you have to understand here is the name is the person. It's the entity. It's the presence. They're not saying here, through your name, we tread down. We just say, when we get in a bad situation, we just say your name. Yahweh! And then everything's better. It's Him. It's His person. All right? Exodus 23, 20 and 21. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way, and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. So God's telling the Israelites, I'm going to send an angel with you. You listen to him. Don't rebel against him. Well, watch what he says. For he will not pardon your transgression. This angel won't. Then he says this, my name is in him. Now it's kind of weird here that the angel pardons transgression because that's something that only God can do, right? And when he says, my name is in him, what does that mean? It's in the angel. His name is in the angel. Again, the Hebrew name here, Shem. Shem comes from Neshema. And we see Neshema back in Genesis 2-7. Then Yahweh, God, formed a man of the dust of the ground. And he breathed into his nostrils the Neshema of life. And the man became a living creature. So breath here is Neshema. And here's what we've got to try to understand. Your Shem is your breath. In Hebraic thought, your breath was your character. It's what makes you, you. It's what makes you different from everybody else. So you can replace the word name in the Bible with character. In Hebraic thought, a name is not a bunch of arbitrary sounds put together. 
some combination of letters. The name conveys the nature and essence of the thing named. It represents the history, the reputation of the being named. You know, in English, we often refer to a person's reputation as they have a good name. Ever heard that before? That's why we don't say, oh, Bob, their name's Bob, so they have a good name. No, they're talking about Bob's character. And that's what they mean. Bob has a good name. It's not that they just like Bob, it's his character. And that's the idea here. The Hebrew concept of name is really familiar to that. So in Exodus 23:21, when Yahweh says of the angel, my name is in him, he's saying my character, my essence, my being is in this angel. Now let me ask you this. <clears throat> Who delivered the children of Israel from Egypt? Well, if we go to Leviticus 11.45, it says, For I am Yahweh, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Okay, so that answers the question, right? Yahweh brought them up. Well, let's look at Judges 2.1. Now, the angel of Yahweh went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt. And brought you into the land that I swore to give. Listen, the angel is saying it's the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. So who delivered them from Egypt? Was it Yahweh? Or was it the angel of Yahweh? Do this. Yes. Yes. It was both of them. Okay. Because they are, they are, they are one God. All right. Now look at Jude 1.5. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, you, he's telling him, you understood this, you knew this, that Yeshua, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Okay, so Jude said, I want to remind you, you guys know this stuff because you know the Tanakh, all right? Yeshua saved the people out of the land of Egypt. Isn't that a little bit strange? How did Yeshua do that? Now, the New English Translation note states this. The reading Jesus, Jesus, is deemed too hard by several scholars since it involves the notion of Jesus acting in the early history of the nation Israel. But He was. He's the angel of Yahweh. However, not only does this reading enjoy the strongest support from a variety of early witnesses, but the plethora of variants demonstrate that scribes were uncomfortable with it, for they seem to exchange kurios, which is Lord, or theos, God, for Jesus. Though P72, this is a manuscript, P72, has the intriguing reading theos Christos, God Christ, for Jesus. Instead of having Jesus in there, they have God Christ. As difficult as the reading Jesus is, in light of Jude 1.4, and in light of the progress of Revelation, Jude being one of the last books in the New Testament to be composed, it is wholly appropriate. Yes, I believe it is. So he says, Yeshua saved the people out of the land of Egypt. So who was it that delivered the Israelites from Egypt? Well, we got Yahweh, we got the angel of Yahweh, and we got Yeshua, right? He, the text here, Jude says it was Yeshua. So who is Yeshua? That's the question. He's the second Yahweh of the Tanakh. That's what we have to understand. He is the angel of Yahweh, who is, in fact, Yahweh. Exodus 3, 4 and 5. When Yahweh saw that they turned aside to see God, to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off, because the place on which you're standing is holy ground. All right, so Moses is told here by Yahweh, get your sandals off their feet, because this is holy ground. Now, we see the same language in Joshua chapter 5. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with the sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and he said, hey, are you for us or are you against us? Are you our adversary? And he said, no. I'm the commander of the army of Yahweh. Okay, now who is this commander? Now I've come, and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of Yahweh's army said to Joshua, 
Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place you're standing is holy ground. Now, first of all, he bows down to worship, and this angel says, wait, wait, don't worship me, I'm not God. No, but he never said that, okay? So we have in the Exodus text, God, Yahweh, telling him, take off your sandals. Then we have in the Joshua text, the commander of the Lord's army saying, take off your sandals, all right? Now, this commander, this captain of the Lord's hosts, he looks like any other man. Because Joshua asks him, are you friend or foe? And he says, I'm the captain of the Lord's host. Take off your shoes. All right? This language would link the reader's mind back to Exodus 3. When they hear this, they hear this language, take off your shoes. Oh, we know that's Exodus 3, where Yahweh and the angel are present in the bush. We already talked about they're both in that bush. They're both present there. And in Joshua, he's, he's telling this man is standing here with a drawn sword in his hand this captain of the Lord's host. Now, that Hebrew phrase occurs only two other times in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, both of which refer to the figure of the angel of Yahweh. Okay, so let's look at that in Numbers 22-23. And the donkey said, the angel of Yahweh, and the donkey saw the angel of Yahweh standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. All right, now we go to First Chronicles and David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of Yahweh standing between earth and heaven, and in his hand, a drawn sword. Okay? So, it's the angel of Yahweh who we see in Joshua 5 as the commander of Yahweh's army. I think that's clear. And in Exodus 3, God says to Moses, take your sandals off your feet for the place you're standing is holy ground. And in Joshua 5, the angel of the Lord tells Joshua, take your sandals off your feet, the place you're standing is holy ground. Yahweh and the angel of Yahweh are both Yahweh, and wherever they are is holy ground. I think that's clear from the text. Now, summing all this up, the Faith Life Study Bible says this. The relationship between Yahweh and the angel of Yahweh, <coughs> angel of the Lord, provides the most familiar example of two Yahwehs. The Old, Covenant, the Old Testament writers at times deliberately make the angel of Yahweh indistinguishable. So we, they're, they're clearly saying they understood this. They saw two Yahwehs indistinguishable from Yahweh. For instance, according to Exodus 23, the angel of Yahweh's name in him is in him. All right. This passage gives a glimpse of the Hebrew Bible's name theology in which reference to the name actually refers to Yahweh himself. Thus, in Exodus 23, Yahweh indicates that he is in the angel, and yet, in other passages, Yahweh and the angel can be simultaneously, but separately, present. Various Old Testament passages attribute God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt to both the God of Israel and the angel. He says, in light of Deuteronomy 4.37, which states that the presence of Yahweh was responsible for Israel's deliverance from Egypt, these passages provide a constructive case of binatarianism. The divine presence, of course, is Yahweh Himself. His essence, perhaps most telling, is the theology in the text of Genesis 48, 15, and 16, which fuses God and the angel. Jacob, near death, in pronouncing blessing on Joseph's sons, speaks of God's saving action in a way that highlights the fusion of Yahweh and the angel. <clears throat> so I think that's clear. And like I said, I think someone's familiar with the Hebrew Bible understands that they didn't just see this, okay, there's one God. They saw this God, there were several persons. They saw two different Yahwehs throughout the Old Testament. But wait, there's more. Okay? <clears throat> what about the Holy Spirit? I mean, we've got two so far, right? We've got a binatarianism, but was there a chance that they, maybe they had a trinity back then? Did they see that? <clears throat> Excuse me, look at uh, Isaiah 63.10. But they rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Now in the context, this verse is referring to the time of the Exodus. Again, the presence of Yahweh is interpreted in this passage in terms of the Holy Spirit. But the Exodus narrative makes it plain that Yahweh himself led his people through the desert and gave them rest. And he said, my presence will go with you. I will give you rest. 
Yet Isaiah unequivocally asserts that it was the spirit of Yahweh that gave them rest. Isaiah 63.14, like livestock that go down into the valley, the spirit of Yahweh gave them rest. So you led your people to make yourself a glorious name. So who was it that gave them rest? Was it Yahweh or was it the Holy Spirit? Yes. You're catching on. <clears throat> Yahweh is the one true God who exists in three persons. The Trinity is not just Christian theology. The Tanakh taught this. The Jews had this concept. Look at Isaiah 63, 9-14. It says, The angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in the pity he redeemed them. We're talking about the Exodus again, okay? But they rebelled and they grieved his Holy Spirit. Okay, now watch this. He says, where is he who brought them up out of the sea? Well, we got the angel of his presence. And then we got this person who's bringing them up out of the sea. And we'll, I'll clarify that in a minute. With the shepherds of his flock, where is he who put them in the midst of them, his Holy Spirit? The Spirit of Yahweh gave them rest, so you led your people to make yourself a glorious name. So here we see Yahweh, I think Yahweh is in the green there, where is he who brought them up, and I'll show you why in a minute. We got the angel of Yahweh, who is the Son, and we got the Holy Spirit all in this text. All three members of the Godhead. Now Psalm 78 is recounting this same event as we see here in Isaiah 63, and notice what it says. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. Who are they provoking? The Holy One of Israel. All right? But I want you to see here that the verbs rebelled and grieved used in Isaiah 63.10 of the Holy Spirit are used here of Yahweh, who is the Holy One of Israel. So Yahweh and the Holy Spirit, the Son, they are one in essence. And in the New Testament, we learn that the Spirit of Yeshua and Yeshua are one in essence also. Acts 16, 6 and 7. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they came to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Yeshua did not allow them. So the Holy Spirit forbade them, but it said then the Spirit of Yeshua did not allow them. The Spirit of Yahweh, the Son of Yahweh, the Father is Yahweh. They're all Yahweh. And they all can be called Yahweh because that's who they are. Now Ezekiel gives us the same picture in Ezekiel 8, 1 through 3. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat by my house, with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord Yahweh fell upon me there. Okay? We got Yahweh in the text. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. So this is somebody else that looks like a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. He put out the form of a hand, and he took me by the lock of that, my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me to visions of God to Jerusalem. So here, again, we see Yahweh in verse 1. Then in verse 2, we see this divine man. Then in verse 3, we have the Spirit. These three figures are co-identified as Yahweh. So here we see Trinitarianism in the Hebrew Bible. And you know what's interesting? In Acts 26, 22, Paul says, I teach nothing but the law and the prophets. This was not something new made up by the church in the New Testament. It's something that was taught throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. The Jews were monolatrous. They served one God, who was Yahweh. But they realized that Yahweh was the Godhead made up of more than one divine being. Sometimes preterists will ask, you know, well, is the Holy Spirit still with us today? Of course He is. Here's what we've got. A, the whole Godhead is with us. Okay? We have the whole package. We dwell in the presence of the triune Yahweh. The Trinity is not an invention of Christians. 
It was well known in Middle Judaism. But if you're not familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures, you don't know that. The Israelites said the second power is Yahweh's essence manifest in a different form. And this is the basis of binatarianism in Jewish thought. Now, <clears throat> later the Spirit of God is spoken of in the same way as we saw in Isaiah 63. So, to deny the Trinity is to deny the deity of Christ. Because if you don't have a Trinity, if you don't have a Godhead that is equal, then, then who is Christ and where did He come from? Was He someone created by God like the Mormons teach or Jehovah's Witnesses teach? Five times in the Tanakh, Yahweh is called the Cloud Rider. And that's polemic. Because Baal, Baal, was, had the title of the Cloud Rider. And so the New Testament, or the writers of the Tanakh are making it clear that Baal's not the cloud rider, Yahweh's the cloud rider. So five times in the Tanakh, Yahweh's called the cloud rider. But there's an exception in Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So here, the rider on the cloud is the Son of Man. It's a human. And dominion is given to this Son of Man, the second cloud rider. Now look at Matthew 26, 62 and 63. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Yeshua remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are Christ, the Son of God. Well, then Yeshua answers the high priest and says, Yeshua said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So when Yeshua said that, He's coming on the clouds of heaven, He is basically saying to the people who understood the Hebrew culture and language, He's saying, I am Yahweh. I'm a cloud rider. You're going to see Me coming on the cloud. What's the high priest's response? Then the high priest tore his robes, and he said, He's uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. He's saying that Yeshua had blasphemed because he said he is going to come on the clouds. And the high priest knew that only Yahweh rides the clouds. He knew that Yeshua was claiming to be Yahweh. Now again, the man on Facebook said, audience relevance alone destroys the idea of the Trinity. Hopefully you see it does not. The entire Bible is written by and to absolutely singularly, completely monotheistic Jews. Well, not really. Monetaristic Jews, yes. Audience relevance does not destroy the idea of the Trinity people. It confirms it. The Jews were monolatrist, not monotheistic. They believed in many gods, but they worshipped only one. But they understood this God existed in three persons. They were monolatrists. They, they worshipped one God who was Yahweh. Alright, you got that? Monolatrist, one God they worship. But yet, in the New Testament, we see these monotheistic Jews worshiping Yeshua. Matthew 14, 32 and 33. When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So, why are they worshiping him? They're only worshiping one God. Because they understood that He was God. They understood that. Okay, John's story, they get in the boat and instantly the boat is at the dock. And they're looking around like we were just out in the water. We're at the dock. The storm is gone. They're like, they just fell down and like, this. we're in the presence of God. Okay? They got it. They got it. 
Exodus 34.14 says, you shall, have, you shall worship no other God, for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. So these Jews are worshiping Yeshua. They must have understood He's God. They worshiped Him. If the disciples are monetarists, and yet worship Yeshua, I think we can finally get it, they finally get it, and we need to get it, that they're saying, He's, he's God. That's why we're worshiping. They, they understood there was a second power in heaven. Now notice what the monetarist Jewish priest, Lazarus, a.k.a. John Eleazar, said about Yeshua in 1 John 5.20. Lazarus was a priest. He worshipped Yahweh. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. So we know Him who is true, and we are in Him and is true, in His Son, Yeshua the Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. Who's the true God? He said Yeshua. He's the true God. Now, people want to argue and say, well, when He's talking about the true God, it's talking about, no, it's talking about the Father, not the Son here. Well, Yeshua the Christ is the closest antecedent to Him, or He, in the text. Immediately preceding the words, Yeshua the Christ. So proximity alone would suggest that as, as the preferred antecedent. Many other church fathers, as well as reformers, argued that the phrase refers to the closest antecedent, namely Christ. Christ is the true God. Another reason, I think, why I see true God is referring to Yeshua is that it does not make sense to say that this is speaking of God the Father. To say that the true God is the true God is kind of redundant, right? But if he's saying that Yeshua is the true God, it comes as an amazing conclusion to this whole epistle. All right, This Christ Yeshua is the very Son of God incarnate who has been sent in human flesh to be our Savior. God has revealed Himself in human flesh in the incarnation of His Son, Yeshua the Christ. He is the true God. This is one of the strongest and direct statements of the deity of Christ in the New Testament. In light of John's polemic against false teachers who denied Yeshua's deity, it seems like a fitting conclusion of the book to refer to Yeshua as the only true God in eternal life. Do you remember what Thomas said to Yeshua after his resurrection when he saw him? Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. What's Yeshua's response to Thomas? Oh no, don't call me Lord. Don't call me God. No, you got me wrong. No, he didn't say that. He said, Yeshua said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That, you know who that is? The, the ones who have not seen and yet believe? That's us. We're blessed people, okay? Yeshua doesn't correct them because Thomas' words are true. He is God. He accepts the worship, all right? Trinitarian theology, which BBC espouses as Orthodox Christianity, states that the term Lord is a term that applies to all three persons of the Trinity, just as the term God is. And we really shouldn't speak of God and then the Son and the Spirit, because that's confusing as if deity belongs to the first person, but the other names, you got the second and third. Sound biblical theology is to say God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're all God. Yahweh the Father, Yahweh the Son, Yahweh the Spirit. They're all Yahweh. Yes, there is a Father, there is a Son, there is a Holy Spirit, but they all are Yahweh. All three are Yahweh, and Yahweh is one God. And that's not what the creeds teach. That's what the Bible teaches. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray you just give us a student's heart that we would desire to dig and learn and study from your word of God. Lord, I pray people wouldn't accept anything I've said until they study and research it for themselves. May we truly find ourselves students of the word of God, Lord, that we may honor you in all we do and say. Lord, help us to be careful in our study and our research that everything we do would bring honor and glory to you. Amen. Questions, comments. Question, David. Yes. Where does the 
where did the Pharisees and Sadducees get off track of, uh, obviously when we read the Bible, we see that there's Trinitarian God in the Old Testament. Where did they get off track to uh, not recognize that? Well, I think what happened was when Christ came along and said, I'm the Son of God, I'm Yeshua, I'm, I'm what you're looking for. This was the angel of God. They're like, no, they rejected him. So they couldn't, they couldn't keep hanging on to that view of two Yahwehs because people would say, well, he's the other one. You know, so they had to change it. And that's, it was in the second century after Christ that the Jews changed their view. Now, you can go back and study this if you really want to get deep into this, okay, which you better pack your bags because it goes really deep. But uh, what's his name? Alan, I think it is last name he's got a book out called two powers in heaven i have the book it is it is not light reading okay but he goes into the jewish beliefs he brings out the you know the different rabbis teachings he shows the documents and he just really lays out strongly the case of this view that they held this idea of two two yahweh's in heaven two powers they understood that they saw it they saw the angel of Yahweh. They saw Yahweh. They saw they worked together, and yet they were different. Because the, the apostles, the disciples, seemed to recognize that. Yeah, like I said, they had to recognize if they're calling, if they're worshiping Yeshua, they had to catch on that he, he must be God. Okay, because we're not allowed to worship anybody but God, the true God. Now, I know this is a complicated subject. Okay, it's really hard to wrap our head. And people try to give illustrations of the Trinity. No, there's mm -hmm. no illustrations, okay? This is just, if it wasn't revealed to us from the Scriptures, there's no sense any of us would believe this. But this is, there is one God. And this one God is consistent three persons. Mm -hmm. All of them equal, okay? All of them working together. Mm -hmm. If the Scripture didn't teach it, there'd be no reason to believe it, okay? There certainly wouldn't. But it's a distinctive of Christianity. The church saw it early. The church fought for it, defended it. Anybody else? All right. Uh, from Norm. Norm says, Our God is just so exciting and incomprehensible. He really is one being subsisting in three distinct persons. Truly the one and only God of gods. Yeshua, God Himself, taught us to call Him Father. Yet Yeshua in Himself, Yahweh, the Holy Spirit is the very essence and personal being of this great God. We simply cannot comprehend this as mere mortals. Praise His holy name. Yeah, you know what? <clears throat> Webster was asked one time if he could you know, explain the Trinity. He said, if I could explain God, I wouldn't want to worship Him. You know, and He's beyond comprehension. He truly is. And there's so much we don't know and don't understand. But we are supposed to understand what has been revealed. Okay? The secret things belong to the Lord, Deuteronomy says. But what's revealed for us and our sons. So, you know, people like to jump on that verse. So, oh, the secret things. Yeah, but okay. <laughs> There's things that have been revealed and we're supposed to know them. So let's get busy knowing them. All right. Are we done with questions there? I'm not seeing anything else. That's fine if you don't have anything. That tells me one of two things. You're totally confused or I did such a good job explaining you got it all down. One of those. I'm going to, let's go with the second. <laughs> just, for my, just for my mental clarity. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> uh, this is from Gary and Chris in PA. It says, question, do you believe in the Trinity? <laughs> Answer, I believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yep, and as long as you understand that they're all one God, they're not two gods, not three gods, they're one God that exists. In, and I know, it's complicated. I'm not, I'm, believe me, I'm, I'm well aware how complicated it is. And that's why I think so many people want to argue against it and just, you know. Where does Jesus ever refer to His Father as Yahweh? What's, I don't understand the point of that. He calls him his father. Why does he have to refer to him as Yahweh? Yahweh is his name, okay? We know that. I don't, I don't think there's one text that says, you know, Yeshua prays Yahweh. You know, I don't, I don't know why. I'm not even following you on that question. Why is that even important, okay? 
Junior from Canada. Great job, Pastor. Thanks, Junior. Appreciate you watching from up there in Canada.